Chapter 17 of Railstone Luck by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 The Return of Rick Railstone. Val ventured to break the sudden silence which resulted from Creighton's astonishing statement. But how? Why? Yeah, the rival had collected a measure of his scattered wits. What do you mean, wise guy? Just this. LeFleur drew himself up and faced the invaders sternly. I have only this very morning deposited with the probate court certain documents making very plain the identity of this young man. Without the shadow of a doubt, he is the only living descendant of Roderick Railstone and his wife, Valerie St. Jean de Roche. I have also sworn out a complaint. Then the boss took a hand in the game. The boy is a minor, he observed. Through me, Lafleur returned, Mr. Rupert Railstone, as nearest of kin, has applied for guardianship, and there will be no difficulty in the settlement of that matter. Yeah, the rival threw down his gloves on the terrace and glared, not at Lafleur, but at his own backing. Having stared at the lawyer of his party until that unfortunate man lost all assurance, he attacked the boss. So, wise guy, now what? We ain't got such a snap as he said we were gonna have. We were gonna move right in and take over the joint, were we? We didn't have anything to worry about. For once we were playing with the law. Yeah, we were. We are nothing but a gang of mugs. What are we gonna do now, huh? You oughta know. Ain't you been doing a thinking for us all along? We can't grab the land and run. We gotta camp right here if we gonna get anything. And how are we gonna... Simpson? The boss's voice was sharp. Be quiet. You're becoming wearisome. Gentlemen, he bowed slightly towards Lafleur and Creighton. One cannot fight bad luck. And this time, fate smiles upon you. It was a good idea if it had worked, he added musingly. Young Railstone seems to have gathered all the aces into his hand. Even, the drawl became a sneer, even the guardianship of the missing heir, which will mean a nice sum in the bank for the happy guardian, if all reports are true. What did you want here? Val asked for the last time. The boss smiled. I shall leave that mystery for you to unravel, my wounded hero. It should occupy an idle moment or two. Doubtless, all will be made clear in the fullness of time. As for you, he turned upon Lefleur. There is no use in your entertaining any foolish idea of calling the police. For our invasion today we have a court order. Unhappily it is no longer of use, but we did come here in good faith, as we are prepared to prove. And all other evidence of any law-breaking upon our part rests, I believe, upon the word of two boys, evidence which might be twisted by a clever lawyer. You may prosecute Simpson for perjury, of course, but I think that Simpson will not be in this part of the country long. Yes. He looked about him once more at garden and house. It was a very good idea. A pity it did not work. Well, I must be going before I begin to curse my luck. When a man does that, he sometimes loses it. You must have found yours, I think. We did, Val answered, but the boss did not hear him, for he had turned on his heel and was striding down the terrace. For a moment his followers hesitated uncertainly, and then they were after him. Back into their sinister beetle car went the invaders, and then they were gone down the drive, leaving the railstones in possession of the victorious field. Now, Val said plaintively, will somebody please tell me just what this is all about? Who is Jeems, really? Just who I said, answered Creighton promptly. Roderick St. Jean Railstone, the only descendant of your pirate ancestor. Better tell us the story, suggested the swamper quietly. You ain't fooling, are you, Mr. Creighton? The New Yorker shook his head. No, I'm not fooling. 
but you're not the first one to question my story. He smiled reminiscently. Judge Henry Lane had to see every line of written proof this morning before he would admit that the tale might be true. But where did you find this proof? Val demanded as Jeems pulled up chairs for the lawyer and Creighton. In that chest of Jeems which you brought out of the swamp on the night of the storm, he replied promptly. And young man, he said to Jeems indignantly, if you had let me see those papers of yours a month ago, instead of waiting until last week, we would have had this matter cleared up then. But then we might never have found the luck, Val protested. Huh! That piece of steel is historically interesting, no doubt, conceded Creighton, but hardly worth risking your life for. No? Well, you heard what that man said just now, that we had found our luck. It's so. We have had good luck since, but I'm sorry, do get on with the story of Jeems's box. I gave it to him Monday, said the swamper slowly. But, Mr. Creighton, there weren't nothing in that chest but some books full of handwriting, mostly in some funny foreign stuff and a French prayer book. Plenty to establish a right to the name and a quarter interest in the estate, snapped Lefleur. Val thought the lawyer rather resented the fact that it was Creighton, and not he who had found the way out of their difficulties. Two of those books were ship's logs, kept in the fashion of diaries, partly in Latin, explained the New Yorker. The log of the ship Annette Marie for the years 1814 and 1815 gave us what we wanted. The master was Captain Roderick Railstone, although he concealed his name in a sort of an anagram. After his quarrel with his brother, he apparently went to Lafitte and purchased the ship which he had once commanded for the smuggler. Then he sailed off into the Gulf to become a free trader, with his headquarters first in Georgetown, British Guinea, then in Dutch Curaçao, and finally at Port-au-Prince, Haiti. It was there that he met and fell in love with Valérie St. Jean de Roche, the only living child and heir of the Comte de Roche who had survived the terror of the French Revolution, only to fall victim to the rebel slaves on his Haitian estates. Horribly injured, the Comte de Roche had been saved from death by the devotion of his daughter and her nurse, a free woman of color. These two women not only saved his life, but managed to keep him and themselves alive through the dark years which followed the horrors of the black uprising and the overthrow of the French rule. The courage of that lady of France must have been very great, but she was near to the end of her strength when she met Roderick Railstone. Against the direct orders of the black despots in the land, young Railstone got de Roche and his daughter away on his ship. Her maid chose to remain among her people. Railstone hints that she was a sort of priestess of voodoo and that it had been her dark powers which had protected the lives of those she loved. Railstone took the refugees to Curaçao, but the Roche did not survive. He lived only long enough to see his daughter married to her rescuer and to persuade his son-in-law to legally adopt the name of St. Jean de Roche, that an old and honoured family might not be forgotten. The Comte's only son had been killed by the blacks. So it was as Roderick St. Jean, he dropped the Daroche in time, that he returned here in 1830. His wife was dead, worn out while yet in her youth by the horrors of her girlhood. But Roderick brought with him a ten-year-old boy who had the right to both the name of Railstone and that of Daroche. Roderick himself was greatly changed. Years of free trading, both in the Gulf and in the South Seas, had made him wholly sailor. A cutless cut disfigured his face and altered the line of his mouth. Anyone who had known Roderick Railstone would have little interest in Captain St. Jean, the merchant adventurer. He discusses this point at some length in his log, always concealing his real name. 
For the space of a year or two, he was content to live quietly. He even opened a small shop and dealt in luxuries from the south. Then the desire to wander, which must have been the keynote of his life, drove him out into the world again. He placed his son in the care of a certain priest whom he trusted and went south to become one of the visionary revolutionists who were fighting their way back and across South and Central America. In one bloody engagement he fell, as his son notes in the old logs which he was now using to record his own daily experiences. Ricky said, Val mused, that Roderick Railstone never died in his bed. What became of the son? Father Justinian wanted him to enter the church, but in spite of his strict training he had no vocation. The money his father had left with the priest was enough to establish him in a small coastwise trading venture, and later he developed a flatboat freight service running upriver to Nashville. But didn't he ever try to get in touch with the Railstones? Val asked. No. When Roderick Railstone sailed from New Orleans, he seems to have determined to cut himself off from the past entirely. As I said, he used an anagram to hide his name all the way through the log, and doubtless his son never knew that there was anything strange about his father's past. Laurent St. Jean, the son, prospered. Just before the outbreak of the Civil War, he was reckoned one of the ten wealthiest men of his native city. But that wealth vanished in the war when shipping no longer went forth from the port. I did come across one interesting fact in Laurent's notes covering those years. In 1861, Laurent St. Jean built a blockade runner called the Redbird. His backer in the venture was a Mr. Railstone of Pirate's Haven. So once again, Railstone did meet Railstone without being aware of the fact. Laurent St. Jean was imprisoned by Beast Butler, along with other prominent men of the city when the Yankees captured New Orleans. And he died in 1867 from a lingering illness contracted during his imprisonment. His son, René St. Jean, came home from war to find himself ruined. His father's shipping business existed on paper only. Having the grit and determination of his grandfather, he struggled along for almost ten years trying to get back on his feet. But those were dark years for the whole country. In 1876, St. Jean gave up the struggle. With his Creole wife and their two sons, he moved into the swamps. Working first as a guide and a trapper, and then as a hunter of birds, he managed to make a sparse living. His eldest son followed in his footsteps, but the younger took to the sea. Roderick St. Jean, the eldest son, died of yellow fever in 1890. He left one son to the guardianship of his brother, who had come home from the sea. That son came to look upon his uncle as his father, and the real relationship between them was half forgotten. But René St. Jean II was curious. He knew something of the world, and he was interested in the past. It was his custom to do a great amount of reading, especially reading which concerned the history of his own state and city. And once he was inclined to get out the old sea chest which had been moved with the family for so many years. Then he must have discovered his relationship to the railstones. Perhaps he solved the anagram or found the pasted pages in the prayer book. He was not ambitious for himself, but he wanted a better chance for his foster son and nephew than the one he had had. So he endeavoured to prove his claim to this property. Unfortunately, the lawyer he trusted was a shyster of the worst sort. He himself had no belief in his client's story and merely bled him for small sums each month without ever really looking into the matter. Grandpappy said he was trying to get his rights, broke in Jeems. He never told my pappy what he knowed, 
and he wouldn't let anyone see into that chest. He kept it under his bed. Then after Pappy died of the fever, along with my mother, Grandpappy caught it too, and the doctor said that that was made him so forgetful afterwards. He stopped going into town, but he came here. Hunting his rights, he said, and he told me that our fortune was hidden here. Course. Jeems looked at them apologetically. It sounds sort of silly, but when Grandpappy told you things, he kind of believed them. So after he died, I used to come hunting here too. And then, when I opened the chest and found these... From his breast pocket, he drew a wash leather bag and opened it. He held out to Val a chain of gold mesh, ending in a carnelian carved into a seal. This is your crest, he pointed to the seal. I took it in town and a man at the museum told me about it. And this here is railstone too. He indicated a small miniature painted on a slip of yellowed ivory. Val was looking at the face of the railstone rebel, as near like the watercolor copy Charity had made of the museum portrait as one pea is to its pod mate. Creighton took up the small painting. Hmm. He looked from the ivory to Jeems and then to Val. This is the final proof. Either one of you might have sat for this. You have the same coloring and features. If it were not for a slight difference of expression, you might pass for twins. At any rate, there is no denying that you are both railstones. I don't think that we'll ever attempt to deny it, Val laughed. But you were right, Jeems. I mean, Roderick, he said to his newly discovered cousin. You do have as much right here as we do. Jeems colored. Uh, I'm sorry for saying that, he confessed. I thought you were right smart and too good for us, and I'm sorry I played hunt. But I didn't expect you would ever see me, only the niggers, and I didn't care about them. I always came when you were away or in bed. Well, you've explained your interest in the place, Val assented. But what about the rival? Why did he appear? It started in a blackmail plot. Your family have been wealthy, you know, explained Lafleur. But then the scheme became more serious when the oil prospectors aroused interest in the swamp. Already several men whose property bound yours have been approached by the Central American Oil Company with an offer for their land. It would not at all surprise me if you were asked to dispose of your swamp wasteland for a good price. And the rumor of oil is what made the rival, as you call him, try to press his false claim instead of merely holding it over you as a threat. The luck is certainly doing its stuff, Val observed. Here's the lost air found, oil wells bubbling at our back door. I would hardly say that, Mr. Valerius, remonstrated Lafleur. They may bubble yet, the boy assured him airily. I wouldn't put it beyond the power of that length of Damascus steel to make wells bubble. Oil wells bubbling. Val continued from the point where the lawyer had interrupted him. Rupert turning out to be the missing author. What was that? demanded Creighton sharply. He was on the point of handing a small book to Jeems. We just discovered that Rupert is a missing author, Val explained. Didn't you guess when you heard the story of the missing railstone? The family went into town to tell you all about it. That's why we were alone when the invaders arrived. Mr. Railstone, my missing author? No, I didn't guess. I was too interested in the story, but I should have. How stupid! He looked down at the book he still held, and then put it into the swamper's hand. Between the pages of the prayer book covering the offices for St. Louis's Day, you'll find the birth certificate for Laurent St. Jean with his right name, he said. That's a very important paper to keep, young man. Mr. Railstone, my author. He wiped his forehead with the handkerchief from his breast pocket. How stupid of me not to have seen at once, but why? 
He had some idea that his stuff was no good when he didn't hear from that agent, Val explained, so he just tried to forget the whole matter. But I have to see him. I have to see him at once. The New Yorker looked about him as if by willpower alone he could summon Rupert to stand before him on the terrace. Stay to supper and you will, Val invited. Ricky and I discovered him for you just as we promised we would. But then you've given us Rod in return. I am not, Val told his cousin, going to call you Rick even though there is a tradition for it. There are too many Ricks complicating the family history now. I think you had better be Rod. Anything you say, he grinned. For the third time that afternoon, Val heard a car coming up the drive. If this should turn out to be the Grand Chan of Tartary or the Lama of Peru, I shall not be one iota surprised, he announced. After what I've been through this afternoon, nothing, absolutely nothing would surprise me. Oh, it's only the family. With the impatience of one who has a good, earth-shaking shock ready to administer, he watched his wandering relatives disembark. Charity and Holmes were still with them, and a sort of aura of disappointment hung over the group. Then Ricky looked up and with a cry of joy came up the terrace steps in what seemed like a single leap. Oh, Mr. Creighton, she began, when Val lifted his hand. Let me tell it, he begged. I've been waiting for a chance like this for years. Ricky was obediently silent, thinking that he wished to break the mystery of the author. But Jeems and Lafleur understood that it was to them Val appealed. Val, what are you doing out of bed? was Rupert's first question. Saving the old homestead while you went joyriding. We had visitors this afternoon. Visitors? Who? he began, when his brother silenced him with a frown. Oh, let's not go into that right now, Val said hurriedly. There is something more important to be discussed. Since you left this afternoon, we have had an addition to the family. An addition to the family? puzzled Ricky. What do you mean? Rick Railstone has come back, Val announced. Val, hadn't you better go back to bed? suggested his sister. Not now, he grinned at her. I haven't lost my mind yet, nor am I raving. Ladies and gentlemen, Val prepared to echo Creighton's speech of an hour ago. Permit me to introduce Roderick St. Jean de Roche Railstone, the missing heir. With an impish grin Val had never seen on his face before, Jeems clicked his heels in a creditable imitation of a coat bow. End of chapter 17 Recording by Gabriel Glenn